0: Welcome to episode 4, season 2 of What They Don't Tell You About. Today we talk wine. Who doesn't love that word? Joining me to discuss everything they don't tell you about it, we have the lovely Elliot Arwen. Elliot comes from a family of wine lovers and runs a multi-award winning importer and distributor business with his dad called Arwen Barrett Siegel Wine Agencies. I sit down with Elliot and we discuss wine taboos and myths such as is pale rosé actually better and why does boxed wine get such a bad rep. I hope you enjoy this podcast and work up as much of a craving for wine as I did. Hi Elliot, how are you? Very well, thanks. Self. Very good. Very hot today, isn't it?
1: Yeah, jolly warm. We've even got the air conditioning on today.
0: <laughs> wow, I'm into that. So I've got Elliot on the podcast today because we're going to be talking everything they don't tell you about wine. Emily, Emily, Elliot is um, his family are importers of wine, so he is a bit of a specialist, and he also does pull the cork. So I'm so excited to have you on and I wanted to know a little bit of background of where your passion for wine came from and how you're in wine now.
1: Uh, It's it's all sort of started on every single family holiday that I ever went on was not to the beach or um, amusement parks, it was to wineries and wine farms as dad was traveling the world trying to find the next best thing uh, to import into the UK. So um, I actually always wanted to be a winemaker as I was growing up. And um, I always thought it was such a romantic lifestyle, creating things from a few bunches of grapes into something that's exported worldwide. And, and yeah, that really took my, uh, took my interest. And then uh, went to uni, didn't even think I was going to do anything to do with wine. Uh, and then finished up there, realising that going into mechanical engineering was nowhere near as fun. And the people in mechanical yeah. engineering might not necessarily be as... Uh,
0: wine lovers I, like yourself. Wine
1: lovers like myself, yeah.
0: And you just um, couldn't risk it.
1: Exactly, and so I joined the family business uh, after a couple of years of working for a number of different wine companies around the world, and then uh, yeah, that's ten years ago now.
0: So, would you say you're the most avid wine lover in your family?
1: Yeah, actually, I think so. Yeah, and that's, really, that's probably saying something as well.
0: <laughs> I can imagine your um, dinner time conversations about wine can get quite heated.
1: Um,
0: not really. I
1: I, I think uh, I. I the thing about wine is i i really love enjoying it as a a beverage and and something to drink rather than gesticulating over uh, its different facets
0: yeah and for so, sure
1: yeah
0: well i think that leads in what's what's your first myth about wine would you say uh
1: well the very first thing is i think uh, well being what they don't tell you about things i think the problem with wine is they often tell oh people in the wine trade often tell you too much and impose far too much information when actually yeah. at the end of the day it is just a drink to enjoy so the fact that you don't have to know everything about it and the way that it was made and put in a bottle to be able to enjoy it is is the first myth i would say
0: i find it do you know what i was saying i was saying that Now I have a bit more time and I'm going on like Majestic or something and I'm looking for a good wine, but I actually feel so overwhelmed when they're like, "Okay, what region, what vineyard, um, what what date and whatever. And I find it so overwhelming. So what would you say is a good starting point for people who know partially what kind of wines they like, but don't necessarily know regions or vineyards or...
1: I think it's getting to know the the style of wine that you like. I mean, how many times have I heard, oh, I don't know much about wine, but I know what I like. I think that is, yeah. as soon as I say that I'm in the wine trade, that's exactly, I mean, I could almost predict that that is going to be the first sentence out of most people's mouths. Um, and actually, it's having a conversation with someone who is on the same level as yourself. So if you said to me, Elliot, I love Sauvignon Blanc, but I kind of want to try a few more other things. I should just be able to give you another wine or a few wines that you can then go home and try and find which, which one you enjoy and go through that iterative process of bringing them back to me and say, yes, Elliot, I like these four, but these two weren't quite my, my bag. I do not have to tell you why you like them or or what the, what uh, the wine making process that went into those four wines were. But what I can do is then give you some more wines. If you want to know why, So that you can then start a dialogue with someone else and say, oh, I was told that I like wines with this aspect. Then having this conversation with someone is is the best part. And buying from a sort of small independent wine merchant where you can uh, go in and have that kind of conversation is is so key, I think.
0: For a starting point, for someone who literally has no basic knowledge or little to none, of knowledge of wine where do you think someone should start in terms of white reds on your on your own personal experiences
1: um, i think going to the main great varieties that are commercially available and looking into different styles in which they are made and mm. the great thing about those really popular styles like uh, Mulber Sauvignon Blanc or Malbec or Pinot Grigio is you almost know exactly what you're getting. It's a bit Ron Ciel-esque. It does exactly what it says on the tin. Sauvignon mm. Blanc is Sauvignon Blanc. It's going to be lean, green, fresh, crisp, and with a with a high, slight fruity note as well. Um, and understanding what other grape varieties might be similar to Sauvignon Blanc or what regions make wines in those kind of styles would be the uh, the first uh, first step i mean it's very it's quite tricky with france for example as they don't put grape varieties on the label so you're then having to understand the region and what grape varieties are produced in the region which is kind of what yeah. the, the the french marketing whilst it's been fantastic for wine they gain this permission <clears throat> to charge and um uh, Can charge fantastic prices, which of course is a great thing. Uh, But at the same time, it bamboozles a lot of people and makes it kind of elitist because having having that knowledge of Burgundy can often be seen as a pompous state of uh, righteousness, as such.
0: I mean, it's so funny you say that. When people speak about wine, in that kind of way. And because, I mean, I have a good knowledge of wine, but I definitely wouldn't say a great one. I would honestly just be like, yeah, yeah, whatever he said is completely right. I would honestly have no clue what they just said, but be like, well, it sounds like you're right. Because it is so overwhelming, some of the things that people say and like where the wines are from and so on.
1: Well, it's really like uh, you can assimilate it a little to stamp collecting. (laughs) Yeah. Because... You can look at a stamp and know a lot about why, it, where it came from or why the ink was blotted the way it was and how it was cut. And, but it's it's enjoyable because you know its backstory, not yes. necessarily because it's a nice piece of art and doesn't look that great. And so yeah. wine is exactly that that same thing. You can enjoy it for the fact that it's, a piece of art and you like just looking at a piece of art and enjoying it for the impact it has on all of your senses, which wine, affects every single one of your senses, Mm. or you can know its backstory and appreciate it for that. And Mm. that's, I think, the disconnect between what people think they need to know about wine being the backstory and what people need to know about wine is, do I enjoy it? Does it smell good? Does it taste good? does yeah. it uh, is the texture nice on my tongue
0: <laughs> yeah for you for you personally what are the first things you look out for in terms of like taste sense is it smell taste when you try a new wine
1: um interest so that they're talking about the quality of a wine we have the balance the length the in, uh, intensity and the complexity they are the real four main things that you lo- look and look out for so balance is making sure that all the flavour profile, the alcohol, the acid, the tannin are all nicely in tune. And um, mm-hmm. it's a bit like having a, a, a table that is one leg shorter than the other. It, it's just quite, not quite right. And it not wobbles, quite right and yet. Not quite right and it wobbles. So length is, um, does it sit in your palate and leave you thinking about it for a while after you've tasted it? The intensity does exactly what it says on the tin. It's yep. um, how loud it is being played. Uh, and the complexity is... How nuanced and how many different facets of the wine uh, can you pull out? And I, ha- I I always like using the analogy that uh, you can have a very intense wine, uh, but it might not be complex. That'd be like someone playing a trumpet with a single note fantastically loudly. It's very intense, but it's not very complex. Or you could yeah. have a, 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 a symphonic orchestra playing... 200 different instruments very very quietly
0: yeah and
1: that's really complex but not intense and uh, yeah. i i love the complexity of wines um and wines that make you think and go back for a second glass or a second bottle because yeah. it's a wine that you taste and it's very one-dimensional you n- might not necessarily want to carry on drinking but wine that makes you think and you go back for a second glass and the bottle's empty already you think gosh i was thinking about that too much to enjoy yeah. it i have to open another sure. bottle <laughs>
0: For sure. I love that. Well, I wanted to go into another myth on rose, and I think everyone thinks this. The paler the rose, the better. So I, I went to go and visit my mum, and when she she used to live in Queenstown in New Zealand, and they have these amazing vineyards around there. And um, we went to a winery and she said, I'm gonna get this rose, you're gonna love it. it came. And I was like, mum, that, that looks like red wine, like nearing to red wine. And she was like, it's fine. Trust me. I was like, that's going to be disgusting, mum. You have no taste in wine. And then I tried it and it was one of the nicest rosés I've ever tried. What yeah. is the myth behind it?
1: So I, I it's a very, it's actually quite, uh, it's amazing. I, I love some dark, there are fan, some fantastic dark rosés out there. The One of the best rosés in the world is a, uh, it's actually Released after ten years of aging, so it's orange and dark at the same time from Rioja. Um, nice. But the myth behind it is most the the star that everyone loves of rosé is crisp, clean, very mineral. And by mineral, I just mean that slightly chalky texture you get from um, the balance of the acidity and slight tannin in the wine. Um, is that r- rosés made in Provence have this color, and that is the mass what you can find in mass distribution that style and that color are synonymous
0: yeah
1: and the other end of the spectrum in mass distribution is darker sweeter almost like ribena a bit soupy not a very grown-up wine and those two ends of the spectrum are what have become um very very popular on the mass market and so i think uh in general, if you're saying a pale rose, the better. What people really mean is I want something dry, crisp, uh a little bit of that freeze-dried fruit texture, um, but something you can drink cold and all day, not a gloopy, sugary, yeah, very, very bold, almost like your haribo Straubs kind of uh flavour profile.
0: Even though I do love them, but
1: yeah, I mean, but not in wine, is it?
0: Yeah, completely. <laughs>
1: um so I think because those two ends of the spectrum exist uh, in supermarket wine, it's, uh, it's always a safe bet to go, if you want a dry, crisp, light, refreshing rosé, to go for the paler style. But that's not to say that you can't make a light, crisp, mineral, refreshing style of rosé that happens to be a dark colour.
0: Where, where would you recommend or how would you recommend someone tell a good rosé that it's a bit darker in colour and take the risk? How, how, how could someone say, I know that's going to be good. What would you look out for?
1: Um, so that's a really tricky one because the, uh, uh, maybe just touch quickly on how rosé is made. It's, mm. uh, so white wine is made and it is pressed off its skins before it starts fermenting. So all the juice of all grapes is white, um, including a lot of red grapes. There are only very few red grapes that have a red juice as well. So the Mm. colour, flavour, tannin all comes from the skins. So in white wine, you want to get the uh, juice off the skins as quickly as physically possible. But with red wine, when you're making darker, darker, richer coloured wine, you want to keep the skins and the juice together and maybe even mash them up and extract as much color and tannin and flavor as you possibly can so rosé is made somewhere in the middle and so okay. it's all about extracting as much flavor from the skins as possible without increasing the tannin too much or out increasing the color too much and there so are no
0: so no juice just the skin for the rosé
1: so no, so so this this juice sits on the skins right. for maybe twenty four hours, and as it sits on its skins, it's it's extract. They extract the flavour and tannin uh, and colour, cool. and so it's all about extracting as much of the flavour as you possibly can before the tannin and colour increase too much, and so darker rosés. Um, might have a lot more flavour, but if the acidity is there, which is all, also very important with uh, with ro- what wine, because acidity has freshness and vibrancy. If you've picked nice and early, and the colour in your grape um, is is still quite du- is quite dark, so something like a thicker skin grape variety like Shiraz, if mm-hmm. it's picked early enough, will have a very high acidity still, but because of its nature, it has a thick skin, so you can make a darker uh rosé mm. with high acidity from a thicker um skinned grape like right. Shiraz. <laughs> Sorry, So right. it's a little bit technical but what you could no. look, uh, uh, what background. it uh, what it comes down to is having a conversation with an independent wine merchant to yep. help you through these uh um picking a darker rosé off the shelf for for the first time and and experimenting. Yeah.
0: Why do you think that whispering angel is what everyone thinks is the be all and end all of rosé are there wines that are exactly like whispering angel but maybe for a cheaper price
1: yes i mean uh, it's your branding uh and uh, french marketing have a lot to do with its success Um yeah i think a nice shaped bottle the classic round label uh the, yeah. the uh, uh, very pretty bottle and um, and then As soon as something becomes very popular, it becomes even more popular. It's a little bit like champagne. Champagne and Provence Rosé are not that dissimilar in terms of fashion styles because people like drinking them out of big bottles. It's a little bit showy. You can picture yourself down on the French Riviera having a six-litre bottle dancing on the table in Anjuna. Perfect.
0: <laughs> Done. I, I, do you know what? I almost think it's like a placebo effect as well because you could say, imagine if you did a test and you had two of like a whispering angel and a wine that was exactly the same. And I think it's almost a thing where I would try the whispering angel and I know it's whispering angel. So immediately it brings back positive connotations and I'm like that is really good wine but if you put them like that two next to each other I honestly probably wouldn't have a clue
1: yeah I, I think uh rosé is is definitely so I was j- joked the other day and said uh summer uh, rosé if if summer was a wine it would certainly be rosé and you have these p- positive connotations of drinking rosé in the summer bring yeah. back great memories and and coming back to your blind wine tasting taking it one mm. step further is putting a blind wine as in a wine that you don't know what it is into a black glass so you can't even tell its color okay the fact that a wine is is darker your mind will automatically think it's sweeter that's another reason because it's like a our minds are trained to eat sweet things and so picking Mm. fruit when it's darker and richer uh, we associate that and the, that phenolic ripeness that gives it that color and that flavor yep. with with sugar. You can't smell sugar, but what you can smell is the flavorings that are precursors to us knowing that there's sugar in that fruit. So something yep. like a peach or a ripe banana smells really sh- sweet. But actually, if you dissolve sugar in water, you can't smell a thing. And that, yep. that the same thing happens with the labels on bottles of wine as well as the colour in the bottle of wine (laughs)
0: Um, I also I think this quite goes nicely into our next myth what is the hype with natural wine is it because the people all the nice labeling the fact that you know it's natural and also what about the myth? that you don't get a hangover from natural wine. I went to Copenhagen recently, and I also want to know why Scandi is really related to natural wines. Because the first thing I think of like Copenhagen, I'm like, well, they drink a lot of natural wine. And there there was a wide selection. But I was like, do you know what? I'm going to Copenhagen. I'm not going to have a hangover, guys. And that definitely wasn't the case at all.
1: Um Right. Well, there's, there's actually so many little topics to fit in.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so, sorry, we, a big one then. Should we start with what's the hype behind natural wine? Yes. And, is... and
0: also where it began. Is this a recent thing?
1: No, no. So it started in the 70s in Beaujolais, in fact, which is a northern part of Burgundy, which produces very light-coloured, um, light-flavour-profiled Gamay wines. Mm-hmm. And, and in the 70s and 80s, as the new wine new generation of winemakers at the time were coming through, they wanted to make a style of wine that wasn't adulterated and wasn't over-extracted. And what I mean by that is when you're making wine, especially in um, marginal regions in the world, you can actually add sugar to the grapes to increase the potential to ferment that sugar into oh, alcohol really so that and you can do it in some of the top uh regions of the world in 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 bordeaux they can it's called chaptalization it's basically okay. just adding raw cane sugar into the into the mix and using that as extra sugar to be fermented
0: does it decrease and, the quality in a sense
1: uh no it uh it doesn't some of the first growth Bordeaux Chateaus will will also so these are wines that are selling for three four five hundred euros a bottle on release. They might mm. capitalize in a very cool harvest because the wine has not got to the uh, the, the level that they need to ferment into a, a good level of alcohol. And alcohol right. adds body to a wine. It's not just there for a good time.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's there to. Uh, I'm like to alcohol percent more. I'll get that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, a level of quality in uh, when uh, they didn't have the viticultural technology to be able to ripen grapes in cooler climates, they the quality was based upon how ripe the grapes got. And so, a lot of the best vineyard sites in the world are areas that ripen grapes better. Right. And so, this was a movement against. Uh, uh, their fathers and grandfathers adding uh, sugar and then really extracting. i going back to the what I was saying about rose is if you've got underripe grapes, you really need to extract for a very long period of time as much of the skin and juice that the skin uh, to mix it with the juice. And to do that, they might leave it on the skins for a month or six weeks, and uh, where they pump it over, i.e., mix the skins into the juice all the time, and. Natural wine was a uh, rebellion against those styles of wine. So the idea was that uh, they wouldn't chaptalize, they wouldn't over-extract, they wouldn't necessarily use oak either, Um, Mm -hmm. and then they would use natural ferment. So it's a little bit like... uh, if you're making bread and you get your uh, dry yeast in a packet, that is a, a, a cultured yeast that you know is going to work every time yep. and, and, and ferment your bread and make it rise. Yeah. Natural yeast is a bit on the sourdough side of things. You, yep. uh, you, you, it's a bit hit and miss. You don't know how active your sourdough starter is. And for, a natural um, wine is always naturally fermented. So it's a little bit hit and miss as to what flavor profile because yeast and ferment fermenting adds a different set of flavors to wine and and actually cultured yeast you know exactly what flavors they're going to be but if it's if it's wild yeast you don't necessarily know what wild yeast and wild flavors you're going to get so that was sort of a rebellion into into that and then lots of regions of the world started to uh, to get on board with this and um Move move away from the over-analysed, over-controlled and manipulated winemaking to give what might be seen as a more honest expression of a great variety or region. Right. The added benefit of that is you might end up with wild flavours and controlling uh, volatile aromas like uh, maybe even a bit acetic or vinegaresque. Or um, there are lots of natural wines that. uh, Almost tastes like apple cider vinegar because yeah. the uh, the bacteria that causes the fermentation of alcohol into acetic acid hasn't been controlled, and so one of the main uh, components of winemaking is uh, adding preservatives like sulfites, um, mm-hmm. and so natural winemaking avoids these, like the plague, and so therefore the uh, microbiological stability of natural wines is not as stable as your uh, your more conventional styles of winemaking.
0: Sulfates have a bad rep.
1: So which brings us on to, does it give you a hangover? Is Sulfites can lead to giving you a bit of a fuzzy head and a few, lots of people are slightly intolerant to sulfites Okay. But I'm not sure why wine gets such a bad rep with sulfites. Because dried fruit is uh, contains more sulfites and preservatives to stop really? it, to stop it from oxidizing than than most wines.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I,
0: when I said this, when I went to a wine tasting in Copenhagen, he was like, I asked the same question, and the guy was like, "As much wine as you drink any time, you are still going to get a hangover." You don't drink like two bottles of wine <clears throat> and think you're going to be fine because it hasn't got sulfites in it.
1: No, I mean the main component of your hangover is derived from drinking too much alcohol, sadly, yeah. no. and therefore dehydrating you. There of course, there are of course other factors that come into it, like drinking excessive amounts of sulfites is not great, um, and the other one is histamine. So histamine is a natural byproduct of fermentation. So oh,
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, especially in red wine, um, which is often why red wine can uh, leave you with a slightly worse hangover than than white wine.
0: Really? Wow!
1: And so, because uh, and the histamines come from uh, the f- extraction and fermentation of particularly red wines, and because you have less extraction in natural wine, you might end up with ne- less histamines, fewer histamines. Less histamine. Mm. Fewer, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> one or the other. What
0: about taking an antihistamine while you drink red wine? Is that effective? That is
1: a thing. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, really? it would It will certainly be a thing if you have an intolerance to sulfites. Then antihistamines stop this uh, the reaction of your body. It, the histamines are uh, is your body reaction to fighting uh, a an intolerance such as sulfites. So yeah, wow. It, uh, I'm
0: a doctor after right. that. <laughs> spotted that mile away come
1: on and then and then coming on to the the why is it so why is Scandi and and natural wine and what has why has the hype um been built up is because natural wine and I was talking about the different flavor profiles that come from making wine naturally they're so unique and distinctive uh, and therefore when uh, it's certainly a rebellion to the supermarket wine where you when you taste 30 red wines at 6.99 in a supermarket they might all taste the same whether it be merlot or shiraz or pinot noir it's all very distinctive and so yeah. that is the one end of the spectrum i'm not saying all red wine conventional red wine is like yeah. that um but natural wine was certainly a one you could tell the difference between the wines and that. Yeah. Not whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, you could definitely drink two red wines and say that is completely different to yeah. that, that wine. Um, and then it and Scandies with it, a lot of uh sort of hipster, there were uh, mm. that kind of uh, craft beer and very foody culture is very attracted to the the, the natural wine scene. Yeah. Um, there are some fantastic natural wine. I'm, I'm making it sound as if it's a it's a big fad, but actually, there are some fantastic yeah. natural wine. You just, as a winemaker, have to be extremely diligent in the vineyard and in your winery, including cleanliness and and your manipulation of your your fruit. Well, your farming of your fruit must be su- supremely healthy. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, the uh, some unwanted flavors can derive from the bees yep. that you might get in the vineyard or some microbiological nasties in the cellar.
0: <laughs> yep, I get you. So, on to our next myth. This was one you brought up.
1: Yeah, so one that talking about nat- natural wine and food and pairing is I think a lot of people often think that white wine is. St- only for fish and not for meat and red wine is only for meat and nothing else well the very first uh, thing we should be thinking of when matching wines with food uh, are the flavors that you're talking that you're cooking with and so take fish for example a plain white fish all on its own uh, that was boiled and think of it as the blandest it could possibly be mm-hmm. yes you might want something that's very light and doesn't overpower the very delicate of a white fish so therefore you are talking about a probably a non-aromatic white wine like a pinot grigio however if you start making that fish into a, a, a more spicy soup or even with tomatoes tomatoes are uh, a terrible companion to white wine especially really? Sauvignon blanc. so if you had yeah yeah so if you had a fresh tomato salad, um, maybe with a bit of onion as well, terrible match for white wine. Um, wow. So you had an onion tomato salad and that was your main flavour. White wine, especially Sauvignon Blanc, the acidity can clash hugely with that tomato. Um, and it, it's a little bit like brushing your teeth and then, ta- and then tasting orange juice. You know that that yep. flavour exists, that, that clash exists whereas drinking uh, eating tomatoes really acidic tomatoes uh, and then drinking white wine you might think the wine is very acidic and sour and not not very flavorful and blame the wine because you kn- you didn't know that the orange juice and toothpaste <laughs> analogy yeah. existed and so it's uh, it, it, that's one thing so if you're having fish and tomato sauce try and avoid the white wine and have something like a rosé or something with a bit of tannin. Wow,
0: I would not have thought that. Every time I think fish, I'm like, okay, let's get a bottle of white. Sometimes I don't even feel like white. Sometimes I'm eating something and I'm like, oh, I would like a red, but, you know, it just doesn't really like. go. What about about cross-matching?
1: No, that's of course. I think... um... Uh, what fish and uh, light reds is a really fantastic match especially something like a light pinot noir um or a gamay from Beaujolais or a a Provence rosé with a lot of texture and and the same goes with meat it's uh if you're thinking about pork pork is a red meat and uh which a lot of people I always used to think it was a white meat, and then if I, it is a red meat. <laughs> um,
0: I've I've literally just realised this as well.
1: I know, it's Crazy! I, I blew my mind. Really, I don't I'm like, really know. You know I don't
0: it, eat yeah. red meat, so
1: yeah. um, so keep,
0: bring but, the pork over.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but pork and something rich and uh, oaky uh, and white would go really well with a um, more traditional creamy mushroom sauce that you might have with a pork loin and. Um, that creamy mushroominess goes really well with a rich buttery oaky chardonnay. Buttery rich oaky chardonnay gets quite a bad rep because it isn't a wine that is necessarily there to be drunk on its own. Yeah. Um, and actually if you serve it not at, straight out the fridge, it opens up and 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 having it at sort of 13 14 degrees um opens up some of the more fruit and volatile aromas such that you um or oh, sorry less volatile aromas, such that it will go with something like a rich pork mushroom mushroom dish
0: that's what i wanted to talk about temperatures okay so everyone knows red wine rim temperature uh, white wine and rosé as cold as pos what what what's is that true
1: so i think uh the cold as physically possible i think we all drink white and rosé a little bit too cold um, and you think def- because the uh there are some fantastic aromas and flavors in wine that are hidden when they are too cold. And I think also drinking wine, to, drinking wine very, very cold is good if you need to hide some of the more um, imbalances that some of the imbalances you might have in a wine. And so yeah. it, it brings wine all down to a level like it sort of hibernates. or um, And so cooling it right, right down hides these imbalances. So you need a wine of a certain quality to drink at uh not ice cold and um, yeah but you are rewarded for not drinking it ice cold because it's incredibly be a lot more interesting opens up on the palate a lot more and and gives you a much better expression especially when you're uh, matching it with food and then red wines highly tannic red wines don't do well chilled in fact they do the opposite of hiding the imbalances they create that imbalance because oh, you need really? a lot of you need a lot of fruit expression to match with high tannic wine so that textural, you know and um, when you lick your teeth and you have uh it is a bit furry that that's tannin mm. like you've left your tea bag in too long
0: yeah
1: um and, and and putting a red wine like that in the fridge will hide all the fruit components but the right. tannin won't hide and so you end up with a very tannic wine that is completely out of balance
0: just get a tea bag and no flavor
1: C- it, correct yeah
0: yeah
1: and so but there are some really nice fruit driven red wines that have very low tannin Um, something like again going back to Gamay from Beaujolais uh, mm-hmm. or, or Pinot Noir and um, that has not been heavily extracted uh, these wines can do well slightly chilled and we're talk, still talking about sort of 12 13 14 degrees not your your ice bucket yeah. two three degrees and, yeah and and actually the they're much more refreshing for a nice summer day um yeah and actually room temperature it's more like cellar temperature is okay. the best so serving it sort of 18 degrees for reds 18 to 20 so if you're on a if you're in a hot summer's day and you're having a red round the barbecue and it's been sitting in the sun it's at like 26 degrees That's too hot. So it's worth putting that wine in in the fridge. So it might perceptively seem cold, but it's only relative to the fact that it's 30 degrees outside and you're having a barbecue. Um, But you need to serve it that slightly cooler.
0: I do think there's um, a really fine line with whites and roses, though. But once it gets a little bit warmer, I am a bit off it.
1: Yeah I think So it's um, hard to
0: keep that point. What do you think about ice in it? Is that uh is that is that a sin? <laughs> uh it's
1: uh, I think <laughs> the more <laughs> I think about the <laughs> I can't really get around this one, but yeah. it's not a sin. I think if you're drinking a high quality wine that is incredibly interesting, got lots of flavor, uh diluting it is uh, if that is what you want, then of course Dilute the flavor of the wine, um, but rather just put it in a, in a really good ice bucket. Thank yeah, you God.
0: <laughs> this is true. And then, what about decanting?
1: Deca- so, I think all wine should be decanted. I, I uh, I've used the analogy in the last couple of weeks of uh, imagine you were locked up for weeks on end <laughs> um, in a bottle, well, like in in uh, in isolation. Your first light night- now they're like now your yeah. first light out. You might not be on form, and so you might have to just sort of get ease into it, have a, a couple of drinks here and there before you really know how to socialize again. And so it's this opening up and uh, finding your uh, feet before being able to show your best self uh, is a little bit like decanting. Um, okay. So it opens up the flavor profile of a wine. It really sort of allows it to start uh, allows it to start showing all of its assets. Um, and so even white wine, even white wine, especially uh, some very even top and burgundy or wines that are made in a, li- a very reductive way, like Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. There are lots of higher wow. Marlborough Sauvignon Blancs, especially closed under screw cap um, because they're very, very protected from oxygen and oxygen helps a wine develop and brings out some of the better and more um, attractive flavor, flavor profiles.
0: Wow, I would definitely not. I mean, I definitely don't decant as much wine. I feel bad saying it. I don't really decant much wine. But even though, I I mean, I don't think anyone knows that you should decant all wine.
1: But it's, uh, I, I mean, if you're drinking a very, very chilled Sauvignon Blanc, that is a quite a um, simple set of aromas that is not... Um, that is not need. It, that this might not be needed to to to, to decant it at all. But right. all red wine, I think, can do from, and it doesn't have to be decanted as such. It can just be poured into a Pyrex jug. Not very attractive, but if you pour it into a Pyrex jug, pour it back into the bottle. That's enough to sort of start opening it up and uh, developing some of the flavour profile.
0: Note taken. So speaking of screw tops, Kay. Why do box wine and screwtop wines have such a bad rep? Are they, are they actually bad?
1: I think it comes back to the very similar uh, analogy that we used at the beginning with pale rosé, dark rosé, is dark rosé often tends to be a certain standard and quality of wine, which is why people associate it with an inferior um, product and screw top wine when it first started was only the inexpensive wine so screw tops and box wine if you go to a supermarket it's you never find wine that is expensive or of much quality in these um especially in box wine screw cap screw cap now you can find wine of all standards ranging mm. from very very inexpensive to very very expensive um, but box wine you still have this uh the reluctance of people to put expensive wines into these, uh, bag in boxes. Um, and so it's a, it's a ch- bit chicken and egg. No, one's going to put expensive, high quality wine in boxes until people are willing to understand that expensive wine and bag in box can go hand in hand. And in okay. Scandinavia, in Scandinavia, especially in the monopolies like Sweden and Norway, there's a lower duty on, uh, boxed wine at, as, than there are on bottled wines, and okay. so high quality wine has been put into bag and box, and uh, it's actually a better atmosphere. If you had three liters of wine, or um, what's that, four bottles of wine, it's uh, to have in your fridge on tap in a reductive atmosphere. Having a uh, Sauvignon Blanc or dry riesling in your fridge on tap, and um, you can take a glass out of it, and it not. Uh, be spoiled and yeah. not have to preserve it in any way, and actually, it's quite a nice way to uh, to have just one glass in an evening.
0: I didn't even think of it like that. And I also wanted to say, obviously, they're a lot cheaper. So, what is what is the sweet spot for wine? Would you say, and and how much of wine is on taxes and so on? So, yeah,
1: interesting. The uh, the average price of a bottle of wine in the UK is just under six pounds.
0: Um, is this to manufacture or to purchase no no
1: to purchase so that's that that's um data that's from um the whole country which is quite it's a lot harder to ascertain from independent wine merchants or small shops that aren't going through your tesco's club card or nectar mm-hmm. card or <laughs> yeah um, so that that average price is just under six pounds and sadly there's a fixed duty on all bottles of wine which including vat is £2.68 so nearly well not quite, nearly half the average price of a bottle and and that's not including the bottle itself the transport or of course the retailer's margin on the way so £6 you probably end up spending about 50p on the liquid in the bottle
0: wow that's mental.
1: Which, it, yeah, which is quite remarkable. And then, so every pound you spend more than that, you're not really spending much more on the bottle, much more on the uh, label, and you're spending no more on the duty. So every pound you spend more goes directly to the juice. So if you're better spending quality. better quality, often better quality, as long as you're not paying for marketing, yeah, in <laughs> big brands, but Whispering yeah, Angel, Whispering Angel, yeah. yeah. Um, and so if you spend seven pounds, you're you're almost Immediately spending three, although you've only spent one more pound, you're you're spending three times more on the wine itself than wow. you were spending six pounds.
0: That's mental. So when so when you say you went to a supermarket or so on, what what do you normally tend to go for?
1: So I I have never bought wine in a supermarket because no, I yet. work I mean, in the wine trade. This but, is true. But where would I start? What what? Uh, and that's again I because because I'm a bit of a wine nerd obviously <laughs> yeah. I yeah uh, I, I go and have chats to people so I would buy and still do buy wine in independent wine merchants because okay. having a chat with some other wine nerd about <laughs> what wines are interesting at the moment what vintage has been interesting what's new that's come out is um, I like having that conversation but yeah. if I was to um, look walk into a supermarket and buy wine as if, um, what, what advice would I give to people? Yeah. Is know what you like. I, I think a lot of people already have a couple of wine styles that they that they enjoy. And I think stepping one step out of your comfort zone. So if you know you like Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, it might be worth trying a Sauvignon Blanc from another region of the world. Yeah. And so if you tried a South African Sauvignon Blanc, from a from one producer let's say and you like that as well then maybe move on to the same producer but a different wine so just doing right. these little baby steps outside of your comfort zone um just to try and help develop a more diverse uh, experience of yeah. of wine if if you're interested in experimenting again it's not for everyone if everyone has found their uh, if someone's found their absolute um perfect wine then there's no it's not yeah. necessarily uh, for everyone to try lots of different styles
0: What um, and in, in terms of price range in a supermarket is there a sweet spot or is it is it is it actually if you spend more money it's going to be better
1: so the problem again i find in supermarkets is it's a bit of a lottery as to what is going on branding what is going on promotions what are what is going um on the packaging? Is it a fancy label? Have they got some epic design agency to create the label and have they spent lots on the tube advertising? So supermarket wine is more of a minefield than you might even picture and It's yeah. a bit of a minefield to start with. Yeah. Um, so. I think if, if people if if people are really interested in in discovering a little bit more about wine is to go into an independent wine merchant and have a conversation with someone yeah a bit tricky at the moment but a lot of them are doing uh delivery and um available on email to chat and yeah. phone I think loads of people love having a chinwag on the phone at the moment it's great <laughs> yeah
0: especially about wine I mean everyone's loving it
1: yeah it's and I think there's some great independents who are putting together mixed cases based on people's tastes so if you rang up someone and said elliot i love sauvignon blanc please can you put together a mixed case of six for me i can that i that would be really fun and it's fun for both of us to yeah, experiment for sure. yeah. and, you and get also to see what blanc. they
0: like after. Yeah, yeah exactly
1: and so you then give me feedback and say oh i really love the terrain sauvignon um but i didn't like that bordeaux oak sauvignon and then i can know that Actually, it's not. Sauvignon Blanc as a great variety; has these assets. But as soon as you start fiddling with it with uh, oak, you might not like it. So, yeah. So, whereas in a supermarket, you're not going to know that that Sauvignon Blanc from Bordeaux is oak unless you read the back label. Yep. And then, but who's got time to stand in the, the aisle of the supermarket two meters while someone else is waiting for you to, yep. to move on? At the moment. I sometimes
0: I feel so overwhelmed that I just end up leaving, and I'm like, it's not worth it.
1: Exactly. uh, So I always use the analogy is because I drink a lot of wine and I know a lot about wine, I I don't know a lot about meat and didn't know a lot about meat. So my local butcher, I love going in there and having a conversation about the different breeds of cattle that he has sourced meat from, different sausages, different cuts of lamb, etc. And it's so nice to walk in and, and Elliot and someone say, Oh, Elliot, I know uh, I've got this thing for you, this been dry aging for 35 days, you should really try this. Oh, and do you need anything for Sunday lunch? Because I know, what about doing this joint of uh, pork, for example? And uh, I think it was Michel Roux, who was once asked, what is the best, what is the best restaurant you've ever eaten in in the world? And he just turned around and say, everyone that knows my name. And Having I that love rapport that It's so good, isn't it? I mean, and, and it's so true. People want recognition and to have a rapport with, with people. And yep. walking into an independent wine merchant can be exactly the same. It's like having your local pub where you have your own glass.
0: Yeah, and then you go in and you're like, guys, he knows my name. Yeah, exactly. And then you're disappointed and, when he doesn't say it and you're like, oh, okay.
1: But if you walked into a bar and someone says, Grace, are you having the usual? I feel like... Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah,
0: guys, you hear that?
1: <laughs> exactly, um, they know my drink. <laughs> yeah, duh.
0: <laughs> so I wanted to go into the last myth, and I think a lot of people will relate to this. Champagne and putting a spoon into yeah. it, What does it keep the fizz?
1: No. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, I, it's a complete urban myth, and I always, and I think... I bought uh, my fiance had we had a bottle of prosecco the other day and I opened the fridge to find it and I was like what's that rattling and then there's a spoon dangling in the bottle of prosecco <laughs> I thought what is going on here how has this happened and did you I, ask her I did I said did you think that this was going to stop the fizz or does it uh, take keep the flavour or and um, because of course. <laughs> Sealing wine is essential because you want to protect it from oxygen. Of course, when you're decanting it, you're giving a little bit of oxygen, which helps it open up, but too much oxygen, and it ends up spoiling and becoming vinegar. And so you always need to seal wine when putting it back in the fridge. Um, And with fizz, there are two things, really. You can't never let fizz warm up once it's open. So letting it get warm in the sun and then putting it back into the ice bucket is fine for the flavor profile but it's not fine for the dissolved CO2 in the in the liquid mm-hmm. and if you want to retain the fizz of wine you have to seal the pressure and if not even increase the pressure in the bottle to stop the gas from uh, fizzing out of the of the bottle so unfortunately, so no I'm spoon let's try and move to a no spoon in sparkling wine world
0: <laughs> i i remember i had a friend's birthday recently and she got this big bottle of lp and it, we we had some of it and i, and I was like we're not going to finish this like it's huge she was like don't worry i'm going to put a spoon in and it will be fine <laughs> two weeks later it was she was like this is awful i can't yeah. believe i've done that <laughs> no. and i was like what the spoon doesn't work
1: so I even, like, I tried to, I looked at, like, when, when we were talking about it, Paula and I, we were talking about it, I tried to look up where it came from. And I can't even yeah. find, like, the anecdotal evidence that it works. Not even, I mean, there is no scientific evidence that it works. There's yeah. even been a couple of studies that prove that it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> people
0: so still I wonder,
1: do it. Um, people still do it. I wonder where the uh, anecdotal evidence came from. But one thing, so it got me thinking. I thought maybe... You know how you get different smells in fridges. You know if you leave an onion yeah. cut not covered, the, the frigid will smell of onion. And I wondered if it was might be that there's some logic to metal absorbing smells, and it could be something like that. But if it's okay. talking about the fizz, it's got absolutely no chance of success.
0: <laughs> okay, so no more spoon. No, uh,
1: sorry, Chris.
0: <laughs> sad, sad. So I wanted to finish the podcast with. What is your favorite white, red and rose of the moment?
1: Oh, I used to I used to cop out this question so often because I said, Oh, it really depends what we're drinking. But I yeah. like of the moment is even is it makes things a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, the white wine, um What are you drinking? A, the, what am I drinking? The most um my favorite style of white wine ever is hmm. actually off off dry. So it's a German Riesling uh a single vineyard cabinet is my favourite area to dabble in. Riesling nice. is a great variety that shows its sense of place better than any other great variety in the world. It can be grown next door to each other, but if the soil changes, the flavour profile changes completely. Yeah. Um, and then cabinet is only normally 10% alcohol as well, so it's very light and very refreshing. It's got a great racy acidity and it's incredibly complex and intense so yep. it, it it ticks all those those boxes and um, red and it's funny that you, you, when you when you're drinking something and you're really sort of in in it you end yep. up speaking about it lots and actually Beaujolais and Gamay and light reds are really in with me at the moment I yep. love them um, I've heard that low tannin <laughs> low tannin very juicy, crunchy red fruit. And I love talking about crunchy fruit because obviously crunchy is not a texture you ever associate yeah. with wine. But it's that the visualization of a super ripe cherry just crunching into it. So that's yeah. uh, those Beaujolais and Gamay are my 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 um, reds. And then Rosé is um, uh, Master Cadmé Rosé from Saint-Victoire in Provence. It's a Ooh. super... Um, it's grown on super calcareous, so very limestoney um, chalk soils, which gives it, this, gives it this fantastic texture. Uh, it's grown by a lovely family; they're now in their seventh uh, generation, and it's uh, it's organic. So it's nice,
0: um, fantastic. That is nice. Cool. I've got to try all of them then. Yeah. Well, I think that comes to the end of our podcast. I could honestly talk to you for hours about wine.
1: i I mean i could unfortunately probably talk for hours about
0: no thank you so much for being on the podcast and i've really enjoyed speaking to you today thank you very much grace being really nice if you'd like to get in touch about anything to do with the podcast or just to say hey our email address and when i say our i definitely mean just me is what they don't tell you about pod at gmail.com very nice and long for you to write down